Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today we're going to talk about the coffee cantata with our guest, Emily Wood, a soprano and composer in the Orange County area. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. Glad to be here. Emily, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we start hearing about the coffee cantata? It's always a hard thing to do, talking about yourself. Um, well, as you said, I am a soprano, and I do a little bit of composition as well. I play piano and organ um, on the side, but I am a huge choral nerd. I love to sing choral music, um, do a lot of local church choir singing and a little bit of professional choir singing on the side. And I do some private teaching as well, teach a handful of wonderful piano voice students of all ages. So it's been a fun, diversified freelance career. And I would say that you are a Bach person. Does that sound right? For sure. Yes, definitely a Bach enthusiast and fan. Johan is my homie. It, for so many reasons, like I could I could go on for a while, but just from his music to like his biography and why he wrote what he wrote and how he lived his life, his personality, just the more I learn about him, the more I just appreciate and am inspired by his work and his life. Yeah, we've said before like the the work ethic of Bach is like a big part of it. Like there's so many great composers out there, but Bach is like the one where you look at it and you're like, this this guy is like a church musician, you know? Like it's a, mm-hmm. it's an important task for him, the church job, right? And it's a sacred task, but it's also like he was so practical, you know? He had to do all this work and he just does it all well. It's like an inspiration for church musicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely is an inspiration. You know, when it comes to church music, I feel like a lot of people struggle with you know, keeping the quality high as the culture changes and everything. So Bach is one of those figures that inspires you to keep that standard really high and to always like put in your actual best effort in all of all of the worship music that you do. You've sung a lot of Bach, Emily. Mm-hmm. What are a few things that you've sung? So a few things that I've sung, one of my absolute favorite Bach performance experiences was when I sang Mass in B minor um, in college choir. That was one of the highlights for me in undergrad for sure. Just being able to live through that experience in the chorus and hear the full orchestration and everything, the complexity and just all of the, the theological themes that were woven throughout made it really meaningful. I've sung a handful of his arias from cantatas. I've yet to sing like a full cantata, but um, I've really enjoyed a lot of his his sacred work in particular. How about the coffee cantata? You're very interested in that. Right. So when I discovered that, I was a little bit surprised because I didn't yeah. realize Bach was so funny. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> so silly. So like as I as I dug into that, and I wound up. Cho- choosing that as my um, topic for my senior thesis when I was an undergrad. Oh. I was inspired by it because I guess to kind of sum up, it showed that Bach was both real hip with the times mm-hmm. and he's funny. Like he has a sense of humor and you can really see that come through like throughout this cantata. It was pretty fascinating. Yeah. Schweig stille, plaudert nicht, 
und hört, was jetzt und geschieht. So when you say hip with the times, is that because of, like, coffee's relative newness on the scene of European culture? Yeah, that's one of the reasons. So he was interested in writing something about this fad, but also hip with the times because he was borrowing some some traits and trends that were going on with contemporary opera. Mm. Like the characterization and the the musical texture, stuff like that. There, there are a lot of bits and pieces and elements of the work that show that he was really in touch with the contemporary opera, even though that wasn't really something that he pursued professionally because that wasn't part of his part of his work because he was so involved in church. Like Italian opera, is that what you mean, or like contemporary yeah. other German or anything like that? Yeah, generally just yeah. The, the Italian operatic trends. Right. Yeah. That is cool because he does, you know, he obviously likes to use the like recitatives. We talked about this like in the later, mid to later years of Bach cantatas, you see that in in the cantatas. But yeah, I I never thought about it like this where the coffee cantata is like so much more operatic character wise and what's going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he saw it as an outlet, like he really wanted to write opera, but he had no practical reason to do so. And so he seized this opportunity just to kind of get that that opera fix. Do we know at this point where, how long coffee had been Mm. around? That's a good question. I gotta look that up. Wasn't it? Isn't there like a prevailing theory that like coffee basically kickstarted the enlightenment and everything? Because people, because before that it was like people gathered, they would, they would just drink alcohol and stuff. And then so no wonder all the yeah sort of intellectual spark uh, of, of wanting to like get, be more scientific and stuff came from coffee. Could be. I mean, we definitely know from this cantata that it was at least in the story, controversial thing and was like more like drugs, but it is a drug. I mean. Or it's a chemical. It's a chemical that affects your brain. But I don't know. Well, they all switched from a yeah from a depressant to a stimulant all at one time, and then <laughs> history now, of coffee. And now we're in the modern world, I guess. Yeah. That's what we got there. Basically, it appeared more widespread in Europe in like the 1500s and and yeah. 1600s. D- did Bach drink it? Do we know? I, d- I don't think we know. I don't know. I remember trying to see if he did because. I was like five or 10 years ago trying to figure out if that should be a thing I should just do or try not to do. You know, you never know. <laughs> but am I going to be one of those people that... Anyway, I went, finally went back and forth. One of those people that drinks coffee or one of those people that tries <laughs> to figure out if people drink coffee? Like, what are you talking about? Drink coffee. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you search like Bach quotes on coffee, yeah, you'll get a quote that is basically like, if I don't have my cup of coffee every day, I'm like a dried up goat. But that's not actually Bach, mm-hmm. of course. Emily knows this. That's from the cantata. So that's a bit of a misinformation. It's not like he actually Dude, said that. Did Bach drink coffee is what I'm searching right now. I don't think we I don't think we know this, do we? <laughs> well, actually, if you look at our logo, our podcast oh. logo. <laughs> oh yeah. 
<laughs> Bach is actually drinking coffee. Anyway, <laughs> we can move on. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, honestly. Yeah. I'm, well, actually, maybe that explains how his huh. gigantic output, you know, mm-hmm. and why no one. Well, okay. Necessarily... We do know that some of the cantatas were performed at coffee houses, including mm-hmm. the c- coffee cantata. Yeah. Yeah. And some of his, and a lot of his like chamber works were performed in the... coffee houses, which were kind of a new thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is just people repeating a, a like fact that might not really be a fact, but a lot of people are saying on here that Bach drank 30 cups of coffee a day. He's like <laughs> addicted to it. Is there a source? I don't know. So anyway, so Emily, you were saying certain stylistic things that Bach was basically copying from popular opera. What are some of those things? Yeah, so there are, there are a couple of of routes I could take on this one. But as far as the actual music, it's interesting that he was veering in the direction of that gallant style mm. throughout the throughout the opera, where the texture is just a little bit thinner, mm. um, as opposed to, you know, his most heavy contrapuntal work mm. in other other cases. So that's one of the musical trends that align with the operatic, Italian operatic trends at the time, which is kind of interesting. But I think the the clearest similarities to me are the characterization of the singers, because in that time, some trends were being developed where we had different types of, of characters in a work. For instance, we have Schlendrian, the, the father. He is um, akin to the basso buffo, so like the, the comic bass um, typical of opera at the time. For instance, like Serva Padrona, which I think is a little later, but is kind of in that same general style, same general trend. You had a, a bass character in there who had these kind of comic arias that he's saying like fast passages and kind of bumbling lines and stuff like that and you can kind of hear similar trends in Schlendrian's solo parts there not to mention his character because in the end he kind of gets fooled by Lieschen, his daughter. And then Lieschen kind of follows the trends of like the cunning servant. So in other operas, like in Serva Padrona, you have Serpina, who's the cunning servant who wants something and gets what she wants in the end, essentially. Lieschen is the same way. She is, you know, the daughter, kind of the subordinate, if you will, but at the end she kind of weasels her way and kind of goes under her father's nose. So that that kind of is in line with the operatic trends at the time, which is super interesting. And what I find hilarious, I thought this was absolutely hilarious when I found this out, apparently when Bach received the libretto, it actually ended at Lieschen's aria, where she is acquiescing to her father's request that she give up coffee so that he will go and find a husband for her, because he was trying to make this deal with her. It's either coffee or a man, like, make your make choice. So in the original libretto, 
Lieschen essentially caves and is like, okay, I'll give up coffee and go find me a husband. But <laughs> Bach, being hip and also being a dad, was like, there's no... <laughs> There's no, <laughs> There's no way. Yeah. way this is yeah. going to be a thing. So he actually added oh. the wretched team and the little trio at the end where Lucien, after her father goes off to find her a husband, she makes this little contract. Und es auch der Ehestiftung ein, dass mir erlaubt möge sein, den Kaffee, wenn ich will. So that whoever comes, you know, to court her has to sign this contract saying that she's allowed to drink coffee. <laughs> so she finds this workaround, and then the ending trio is cats do not give up mousing, girls remain coffee sisters. Basically, another ode to coffee. <laughs> <laughs> kind of haha in your face, slowly around kind of a thing. So I thought that was incredibly hilarious how Bach was just like, no, this is not realistic. We're going to add to it. Yeah. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. And the the like, the sneaky like deal that she makes is like the most interesting part of the story too. And mm-hmm. it, it's funny that you don't like hear of it until that near the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just in the one little recitative at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So is them all singing the trio together sort of like Schlendrian is now agreeing or he's giving up or, or is, know, he, is he singing in it no he, he is, is in the bass yeah. he, he is, is in the yeah netherlands box society recording he is because the tenor is the uh is the narrator right kind of similar yeah. to the way the tenor role is all the times or is it just like a chorus at the end mm-hmm. well it says trio i wonder what i wonder if bach specified that but it says trio yeah I kind of, the way I understand it, it almost seems like a um, like a little bit of commentary at the end, not necessarily a part of the story, but just, right. I guess you almost have like three narrators in a sense, so they kind of hop out of the story in a way. Yeah, they are acting like like a chorus there, right? Yeah. Like, like a typical chorus. Let's see what the manuscript shows. The characters are like denoted when they first enter, I think. Yeah, I love the, the very end. It's like the mother loves her coffee, the grandmother drinks it too, yeah. Or it's like, yeah, young ladies love their coffee, mother loves coffee, grandma loves coffee. Who can blame them? <laughs> and that's like how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it just says chorus. It doesn't indicate the characters at the end. Because we only have a couple of like silly pieces by Bach, right? There's this and there's like Quart Labet that we talked about once in the previous episode or the previous season, right? And that's that one's even weirder. Like it's just really random. It's just like a bunch of nonsense. Yeah. But it's funny. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, so I, so Emily, like like you, I think the Madison B minor was like my entryway into really loving Bach, mm-hmm. and I played the timpani part as a student, which was like a lot of pressure, even though it was definitely the easiest part of the orchestra, because back then the timpani, you only had two pitches, right? So it was like it was not that it didn't play all that often; it only plays on the big festive movements. But I was like really intent to myself that like i've got to make sure i learn everything in this piece so i'm not not like i need to be be ready for my entrances right Mm -hmm. so but then i did get to sing it later which is which is great but i'd love to sing the tenor part at some point in the future um because i was singing baritone back then because i had no idea what my voice was (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and now I'm like, obvious, I, have, I know a little more obviously that, yes, I am actually a tenor voice and I would love to sing that part. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's stunning work. But it is funny. It's funny the contrast, maybe the most striking contrast of Bach, either that or St. Matthew Passion, then to like this, which is just so silly. And the fact that he could do both and do them. And like, this is also like great. That's what's the thing is like, it'd be one thing if he was like a self-serious composer and then he had a couple of things where he tried to be silly, but they didn't really land, you know? Mm -hmm. But this is actually amazing and totally works. I I think it speaks a little bit to like the time, the sort of like ego-free time that he lived in because if it was like 100 or 200 years later, there would have to be, there would have to be some self-important heaviness that went with his big works and just wasn't. And that's, but they were still giant works and even medium sized or smaller things like this that are a little bit sillier can still just be of the same order and they don't have to feel separate. And you can just tell that his work is so genuine because I mean, after all, like he was mainly just a local musician and composer and he wasn't incredibly famous until years and years after he died. So that probably helped to you know, prevent some ego challenges, but it also shows evidence for like how genuine his work is. You can just really tell there there's his own unique flavor. He's not necessarily trying to like prove something or like impress anyone. He's essentially just like giving his personal best and showing his own personality through through his work, which is really cool. Even a lot of his contemporaries don't really share that same exact flavor to their output. I mean, I guess his contemporaries were also expected to write both sacred and secular music, but it's just it's just not exactly the same. Also, the idea of parody back then was still a lot freer than it is now, right? And, and the idea of using something, reusing something for a sacred or, or secular context was not as, didn't have the same stigma that it has now, right? There's a lot of stuff by Bach that we have that are, there. this is not the only secular cantata, right? There's several others, but those are usually like in honor of some like elector or like government person, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so those kind of, for some event. And Bach would readily reuse something that he used for that for something sacred later or vice versa. And he, you could tell that he didn't see it as uh, like problematic or like irreverent, I guess is the better word. Like you could tell he didn't see it as that. That it was just workmanship kind of. I, I, I wrote this thing, I can reuse it for this, it works for this, you know. Yeah. We also know from scholarship back in the 1800s that people in the Baroque era did not really consider chamber music to mean like it's a small group. Instead, chamber music meant like secular small group. And like we find, we find uh, for Bach's other like small group stuff, he, the people of the day didn't call it chamber music if it was sacred. Mm. They just had a different perspective back then, I think. He lived at such an interesting fulcrum point in history because he also completely understood the new style of things. And he even apparently ended his own little mini opera. It's not really an opera, I guess, but uh, he ended it a little bit more forward thinking than he, than he could have. <laughs> which true. is, you don't, didn't, you don't necessarily expect that out of a 17th century or 18th century composer. Yeah, I wish we knew if he like based this on it on one of his daughters or something who really loves coffee or something that'd be that'd be interesting but i don't think we know i can imagine the dinner table conversations though <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure it's funny too about his being so hip with the times because didn't his kids like make fun of him for being like antiquated in his writing yeah 
didn't they call him like the old the old Bach or something? Even his kids yeah. did, or so- something to that effect. It was like a you know, as a term of endearment. But yeah, the old the old Papa or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he he did the fact that he was not he he could write stuff that was cutting edge, right? Like we can see here, but like the fact that he was completely fine just writing stuff that was in the an- antiquated style, also that made people sometimes think that he was just kind of an old-fashioned person. I just love these words. (laughs) Like, she's really into coffee. (laughs) It's like... Lovelier than a thousand kisses, smoother than wine. Let's have coffee. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Emily, I was going to ask you, what other Bach... We already talked about Mass B minor and some of this stuff, but what is, like... I'm curious about, like, cantatas or passions or something. What is, like, some of the favorite arias that you've sung of Bach? Oh, gosh. Favorite arias. Um... Sir Felisa from, I think that's from St. John Passion, is near and dear to my heart for sure. I'm sure I can think of some others, but I generally, I generally lean toward the more solemn ones with the pathos yeah. because they have those cool, like anytime I see a particular interval, like the juicy intervals, like the diminished sevenths, that kind of a thing. Mm. Um, those are just automatic points. <laughs> they go into my favorites list. Yeah. Well, those are great moments. Mm-hmm. Do, do you do you like singing recitatives? Like, mm. is there a certain challenge to that or a certain interesting part of that? I mean, there are unique challenges to singing recitative just in general. Um, you have to approach it a little bit differently than you would an aria. The way you learn it is a little different. And there is a little more room for interpretation, I think, yeah. as as you think about like pacing, yeah. how you pace it. But I think they can be fun. Yeah. Um, I, I like the challenge of it, but. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because depending on the coach you're working with or the singer you're working with, they're gonna have different ideas of what Baroque or Bach recitatives are supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. Like I remember working with a coach who tended to take a more romantic approach to everything. Mm-hmm. And so we were working on this Bach recit and this coach was wanting to do a little bit more of push and pull, make it a lot more speech-like. Whereas I've heard a lot of um, the more purist Bach singers keep it a little more square and straight. So it's just interesting how diverse a recitative can be, depending on who you're working with or who you're talking to, you know, because they have just completely different ideas of how Bach should sound. Yeah, they do end up sounding different across recordings. Ich will dir keinen Fisch, mein Rock, nach schaffen. They didn't really stage it, according to what I read, right, Emily? They, we don't think so. We think that they they did it 
more like an oratory or like a cantata. I don't Possibly. like without costumes and acting and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think I have a hunch just based on the fact that Bach was privy to operatic trends. I have a hunch that there may have been a little bit of staging in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not through like physical things like costumes and things, but maybe by some form of staging, they might have taken it a step further than you know you would a, a typical cantata where people park and bark essentially. Yeah. Um, but that's that's kind of just speculation. Hmm. But I would also think like since this would be performed in a coffee house, I would imagine that would be a bit of a smaller space, so you would have some limitations as to how much staging and movement you could do, so that could definitely factor in. Now let's hear again that last recitative, the part with the text added by Bach. Und sucht der alte Schlendrian, wie er vor seiner Tochter Lieschen halt einen Mann verschaffen kann. Doch Lieschen streuert heimlich aus. Kein Freier kommt mir in das Haus, er hab es mir denn selbst versprochen. Und rück es auch der Ehestiftung ein, dass mir erlaubt möge sein, den Kaffee, wenn ich will, zu kochen. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the delightful coffee cantata please see the link in the episode description to see that performance by the netherlands box society our guest emily wood has a website and we're linking that in our episode description as well if you want to leave us a review we always love those and they help other people find the podcast So the next thing that we'll have for our listeners is a bonus episode. We received permission from Bach Stiftung, the J.S. Bach Foundation in Switzerland, to use one of their recordings. And it is from a cantata that we have already covered. But we hope you enjoy this short comparison where we get to explore their recording of a very different tempo than something we've already looked at. And then after that is our episode that releases regularly on the next week, which, Alex, what will that be? For that episode, we'll take a listener request. This is actually a request from one of our Patreon listeners, John. The request is for a very special moment in the Bach Mass in B minor, the Et Expecto Resurrectionum moment, or rather the transitional moment that happens with that text. If you know it, you know it. Until next time, enjoy those moments. (laughs) 